You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. We are in a series in the midst of the book of Genesis, particularly on what God does in the lives of the men and women of Genesis from chapters 12 through 50. Abraham and Sarah, Hagar and her son Ishmael, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Esau, and now today, Leah, Rachel, and because the text names them in chapter 29, Zilpah and Bilhah. All four of these women in this text are named and highlighted. All four women become mothers of the tribes of Israel. The text not only tells us what happens to them, how they are exploited or mistreated, but also this text, this ancient Hebrew text, preserves the dignity of their emotional, relational, and spiritual journeys and how God met them on that journey. Genesis is not just about the patriarchs. It's about the matriarchs, too. And that will begin to shine through on the text today. It always amazes me the book of Genesis does because as ancient as the story that it tells is, these events are happening around 4,000 years ago, it tells it in such a relational and emotional way that it has such resonance for us through the ages, who are defined so deeply by our relationships and our quest for relational fulfillment, our relationships or the lack thereof with our family of origin, our friendships, our social groups and how we fit into them or how we don't fit into them our romantic desires, our quest for marriage, our marriages, our broken marriages, our lost loves, our lost relational dreams. Genesis speaks to all of it because God speaks to all of it. To be a human is to be made in the image of a God who is inherently relational, and it is to be an inherently relational being. But that quest for relational fulfillment in our life is broken. And it's constantly being disappointed by the pain that relationships or the lack thereof bring into our life. The text today is going to teach us something about our ultimate longings and about God's ultimate fulfillment of them. And I want to offer today this brief meditation on the text, just a meditation walking through the the story and then an exploration of how this text speaks into our life individually and our life together as a community. So first, the meditation. Remember Jacob, he is on the run from his brother Esau, and he's desperate to get get to his mother's brother's family in the east, far away from the land of Canaan where he has come from. Though he was the younger brother, he deceived his older brother Esau and cheated him out of the father's blessing. And now here he is, Jacob, the deceiver, wearing the clothes on his back, looking for a family, looking for a home, looking for love, told by his parents to go looking for a wife in Haran. But he's in a very vulnerable place. He's exposed, and his life has been laid bare. And then he comes to a well. And if you know anything about the God of the Bible, you know that God likes to meet people at wells. (laughs) The Lord likes to meet those who are thirsty for something. Happened several times in Genesis, all the way into the New Testament. God met and rescued Hagar, the Egyptian woman, in Genesis 16, who had been cast out by Abraham and Sarah and left for dead. He met her at the well. God orchestrated the meeting of Isaac, Jacob's father, and Rebekah, Jacob's mother, where? At a well. Jesus would later meet a vulnerable Samaritan woman at a well, too. Changed her life forever. And here, at this well, there's this meeting between Jacob and Rachel. Rachel. 
And once Jacob realizes who Rachel is, his uncle's daughter, he greets her in a deeply emotional but also customary way for Ken to greet in the ancient Near East with embracing and kissing. And she runs to go get her uncle, and he embraces his uncle, Laban. And Laban welcomes him as family, and he works on the farm for a month. And finally, Laban asks him what he wants, and he wants Rachel. And now the text inserts here and lets us know that there's a tension in this love story. There are actually two daughters of Laban. One is older and one is younger. You see that older, younger thing? It's already come up in Genesis, hasn't it? It's coming back. It's going to come back to bite old Jacob. And as far as physical appearance, though, Leah is not as desirable as Rachel according to the standards of her day. Rachel is very beautiful in form of her body and her overall appearance, and Leah is less beautiful with delicate or weak eyes, according to the standards of the day. And this text is, bringing, is, not, is not bringing this up to shame Leah. The text is bringing this up to tell Leah's story from her perspective. Because this Leah-Rachel phenomenon and what will play out from it in our story today is a tale as old as this time, but yet plays out again and again. Women and men, but especially women, subjected to an evaluation scheme that places some on top and some below, some as desirable and some as undesirable. We're seeing that play out in a new way today in the age of social media. In his forthcoming book in a few weeks, The Anxious Generation, um, writer and researcher Michael Haidt will be publishing in book form what he's been talking about on the web for a long time, summarizing the effects of digital technology and social media on childhood today. But this negative effect on mental health is statistically worse on young women than it is on their male counterparts. And I don't have time to get into all the research, but part of the negative effect stems from this Leah-Rachel dynamic put into a hierarchy of beauty where one falls within that and if not, being exploited profoundly by a system of swipes and likes and cyberbullying. The church has to speak into this phenomenon. Jacob wants Rachel so much that he's willing to work a full seven years. That's about two times as much as he would need for a typical bride price. But he's desperate. So he puts this before Laban, who doesn't say yes, if you notice. He says, better you than someone else. But Jacob is so desperate that he heard, yeah, of course. Uh-huh. He is so desperate to make a life with her that they seem to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. So he finishes that and then says this very blunt phrase that has been a struggle for Jewish and Christian commentators through the centuries because of its crassness. My time is up. Give me my wife so that I can have sex with her. Woo! Uh, it is not, it's not exactly a wonderful picture of Jacob, but the Bible's not interested in wonderful pictures. And then there, there comes the infamous part of the story, a wedding feast, lots of drinking, we assume, no electric lights in the tent, we assume, veiled brides, we assume, and Laban switches out the, under for the, the older for the younger, and Jacob wakes up next to Leah. The deceiver is deceived. Derek Kidner would say that through Laban, Jacob drank deeply of his own medicine of duplicity. He who betrayed Esau is now betrayed, and he's angry. And Laban gives him an excuse. It's not done in our land, and whether that's legitimate or illegitimate, we don't know. But he's forced to work for another seven and is finally given Rachel as his wife. But he, of course, loves Rachel more than Leah. 
And the text is very delicate in how this is dealt with, remarkably so, if you think about it. It centers the feminine experience, even in the midst of the structural and patriarchal realities of that time. Fathers giving away their daughters, and bride prices, and polygamy, and all the rest. Still, and frequently today, in our enlightened modern culture, men in power write stories and enact plans without any consideration of the feminine perspective and experience. And here, in a text telling a story 4,000 years old we see this why because scripture is breathed out from the spirit of God and the spirit of God exalts women and their experience and their dignity verse 31 when the Lord saw that Leah was hated see he's a God who sees it is the Lord who is the actor in this story who intervenes in the midst of a broken social order that cast Leah aside because of her physical appearance it's the same Lord, as I already referenced, that found Hagar, the Egyptian woman, in Genesis 16, who was an ethnic outcast, who was undesired, and who was left for dead. And after God met Hagar, she named the well Be'er Lahai Roi, which means God sees me. See, God sees everyone. God shows no partiality to gender or ethnicity or appearance. As the book of 1 Samuel says, the Lord sees not as man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's worth pointing out here, because it's coming up in our text today, that the narratives of the Bible are often descriptive, not prescriptive. What do I mean? I mean, because polygamy, etc., takes place here in this text, it is not prescribing that as a moral norm or something that the Lord approves of. And in fact, over and over again, the narratives of Genesis, by the way they tell the story, show you that if you arrange your social family like this, it will be dysfunctional and broken. The narratives are very clearly presenting to you. And it's worth noting that later when God gives the law, he explicitly forbids this type of family arrangement. <laughs> because it obviously wreaks all sorts of havoc. But our chapter today ends with a great reversal. Leah, the despised one, bears children, whereas Rachel, the favored one, cannot. Rachel is going to have her own deep pain around this vulnerability in her life, She's going to have to navigate it in chapter 30 in some really broken ways. You can go read about that. But Leah finds in the conclusion of this part of the narrative that she cannot give birth enough to make Jacob love her. Our chapter ends with the birth of four children, and the narrator of the story, of the story does something really important that you might miss. Leah gives names to her four children, as was often done in the ancient Near Eastern Hebrew culture, based not on necessarily their destiny, but it's based on what she's dealing with at the times of their births, which is this longing for Jacob's love and living through a profoundly broken relational reality. And the Hebrew names that are given sound like other Hebrew verbs. And here is the progression. First, she names her child, her son, Reuben, which sounds like the verb to see. And she's wrestling here because she says at one point, because the Lord has seen me. But she also says, but because I want my husband to see me. Finally, I'm performing for him as a child bearer. Surely now he will love me. I hope he'll see me now. And then there's the second son, Simeon which sounds like the Hebrew verb to hear because she says, the Lord has heard me, 
but it's implied that maybe now my husband will listen to me. Maybe now my husband will hear me. And then finally, Levi, which sounds like the verb to be attached to someone, to attach. And she says desperately, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons, which in the ancient Near East is like bearing someone a fortune. But still, Jacob despises her. And then there is Judah, which sounds like the verb to praise. In Judah's name, there is no more reference to her neglectful husband, only a reference to the Lord. This time I will praise the Lord, and she ceased bearing. Her pain over her relational circumstances has not left her, I'm sure. She's going to have to, it'll come up in the next chapter too. But at this moment, the focus of her heart's attention has ceased to be on the one who is causing her pain and has been centered on the one who actually sees her pain, who actually does hear her pain, who is attached to her, Yahweh, the Lord. That's why she can praise her attachment to this man, Jacob, has not made her praise. Her, her quest for relational fulfillment in a broken, humiliating social order has not made her praise. Her fertility and ability to bear children has not made her praise. There is one who has made her praise, and it is the Lord, the God who sees. And what Genesis is showing us again, as it has already, is that salvation is worked out through the rejected one. What the text is doing for us is placing a special emphasis on the rejected girl, Leah, and her letting go and watching God work. You see, this links into a theme of Genesis and also of the whole Bible that God works salvation through the one who's cast out, through the rejected one. Abraham was cast out of his homeland to take the suffering journey in order that he might be a blessing to the nations. Jacob here has been sent on the run into exile, and blessing will flow through his life. And of course, his son Joseph will be cast out by his brothers, sold into slavery, sent into Egypt, that he might be a means of salvation for the whole entire region during a famine. And here is Leah, rejected one, despised one, a woman of sorrows acquainted with grief. <laughs> and in the midst of her darkness, she gives birth to Judah. And as she does so, as Leah gives birth to Judah, she finds her place in the central genealogy of the whole entire story of the Bible. Along with other suffering, exploited, rejected women, Rahab the prostitute, Ruth the Moabite, Bathsheba the exploited wife of Uriah the Hittite, and finally Mary, who gives birth to the one who left the place of loving communion with his father to become a rejected one, a despised one, that through his weakness, through his emptying of himself, God might work salvation for you and me. And that love, that love is the love that is meant to ground us relationally in a broken social order in the midst of a world that can never fulfill us relationally just through other people. That's gospel love. It's the love that's meant to thirst, to quench our thirst for love and make us relationally secure in this world. Isn't it so beautiful that God tells the story of the gospel through Leah, through the rejected woman? I want to explore then how this works out in our life through three things. Centering, seeing, and telling. First, this narrative is leading us to center our souls on God. 
Leah is trying desperately to find her relational center in the person of Jacob. Jacob is trying desperately to find his relational center in the person of Rachel. They are two pictures of this human quest to find our fulfillment in another. Henry Nouwen, the famous Dutch priest, wrote a book called Reaching Out, The Three Movements of the Spiritual Life. And if you've been around Mosaic and if you've been around Sister Ashley Williams, you'll know this book because it's like her life text. (laughs) Here's what he says. He says, no friend or lover, no husband or wife, no community or commune will ever be able to put to rest our deepest cravings for unity and wholeness. And by burdening others with these divine expectations, we make our friendships, our relationships, unable to bear that weight. Friendship and love cannot develop in the form of an anxious clinging to each other. They ask for gentle, fearless space in which we can move to and from each other. As long as our loneliness brings us together with the hope that together we will no longer be alone, We castigate each other with our unfulfilled and unrealistic desires for oneness. He says it is sad to see how sometimes people suffering from loneliness, often deepened by a lack of affection in their intimate family circle, search for a final solution to their pains and look at a new friend, a new lover, a new community, a new church with messianic expectations. Although although their mind knows about their self-deceit, their hearts keep saying, maybe this time I have found what I have been searching for. Wherever you feel like Aaliyah, cast aside or rejected, excluded or or marginalized, you have to know it is there that the Lord sees. Others will not always see you. Others will be like Jacob many times, not putting their favor on you. But it is the Lord who sees, always. And the call that the scripture leads us to is to center our lives upon the love that is God, the love who is God, and not buy into the world's fantasies of finally finding that one, finally finding that church community that will always make you feel known, that will always make you feel seen. Churches can't do it. Lovers can't do it. Friends can't do it. Families can't do it. But the Lord can do it. So we are called to center our souls on God, but we are also called to see the unloved. The church should always be aware of the evaluation schemes within our cultural context. Who is more or less desirable and beautiful? Who is more normal or masculine or feminine according to the schemes of the day? Who is cast out as the unloved one? The church is to be like the Lord. We are to be like Jesus. We are to be like the Lord in this passage, the one who sees the Leahs who are hated, the outcasts, the rejected, the mistreated, and the one, the church is to be the one who exalts them and their stories together. But our eyes and our hearts are often drawn to the Rachels and not the Leahs. We're drawn to the beautiful, not the less beautiful. We're drawn to the rich, not the poor. We're drawn to the educated, not the illiterate. We're we're drawn to those who smell good, not to those who stink. But that is not how Jesus operated. When Jesus came in his life, in his ministry, he sought after the Leahs. He didn't ignore the Rachels because they have their own needs too. But he sought after the Leahs. May we be chastened by God's upside down kingdom. Who is a Leah in this community? 
Who is a Leah of your class, my young friends? Who is the Leah on your block? Seek them out. See them as the Lord does. And finally, as I close, this text of Scripture leads us to tell our true stories. What do I mean? Are you honest? Are you as honest about the testimony of your life as, Je- as Genesis is about the life of Jacob and Leah and Rachel? I mean, think about it. All of this testimony about their lives must have been passed down by somebody. Them, their children, their family. And much of it is not a good look. You don't walk away from this text going, wow, Jacob's a great guy. Laban's a great guy. Much of it is not a good look. How do you narrate your story, though? Are you the hero? Or do you mind giving God the praise? God's going to get it anyway. Your story is going to come out, whether now or later, whether it's a broken story or a clean story. You might as well give him the praise now. You might as well share honestly with your friends and your neighbors about what God has chosen to do in your life despite your mess. How God found you when you were an outcast or cast aside. How God found you when you were neglected and also foolish, but filled your life with good things anyway. Or are you trying like Leah to continue to give birth to things in your life just to finally convince others that you really do deserve their affection and affirmation? The secret to true gratitude and joy in your life, it is not complicated, but it's a lifelong challenge. And it's about this, people. It's about moving from your Reuben moment, maybe I'll be seen, to your Judah moment. The Lord sees me. That's enough. Let me praise him. We got to move from our Reuben moment to our Judah moment. Amen. God be praised. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.